What's up, sandwich heads? Today on Steve O's Sandwich Reviews, we've got the tips and tricks to the best sandwich order. And it all starts with this little guy right here Pepsi Zero Sugar. Partial to pastrami, craving a Cubano. Yeah, sounds delicious, but boom! Add the crisp, refreshing taste of Pepsi Zero Sugar and cue the fireworks. Lunch, dinner, or late night, it'll be a sandwich worth celebrating. Trust me, your boy's eaten a lot of sandwiches in his day, and the one thing I can say with absolute fact every bite is better with Pepsi. This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. The parallel explanation would be eating a Big Mac burger. Okay. All right. Um, we watch the ads and the patty looks juicy. Yes. And it looks thick. And, you know, you're, you're promised a Big Mac. And then you go to your local McDonald's and you order one and it tastes like cardboard. Right, right. And you eat it anyway. And you get disappointed. Yes, but you eat it anyway. And then you go back for more. And you know it. You know it. (laughs) Even after, before you opened it and found out it looked like cardboard, you kind of had it at the back of your mind. That's what it's going to be And it's not as pretty as it looked on television. And, you know, the bread isn't as fluffy and there aren't sesame seeds on the bun, which was something the song promised. BFM 89.9, listening to Night School, the show that explores concepts, theories, and society. I'm Ahmad Fat Rahmat, joined this week by Vizla Kumarisan, and we're going to talk about postcoital sadness. Mm. Before we get into the technicalities of it, let me just let you know that the first time I even knew about this was through the term post-nut syndrome. Why post-nut syndrome? <laughs> and this was like during my college years, like many, many years ago, like when my frat boyfriends were telling me about it and they called it a post-nut syndrome. Obviously, it's not, it's not a clinical term. I didn't know there was a whole body of research around this. Mm. But why post-nut? Well, nut is just a frat boy way of saying ejaculate. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And this is something that they would talk about after a few beers and, you know, uh, when they're recounting moments, I guess. So tell us where to begin. Well, since we're on confessions. <laughs> I, think, I don't think that was much of a confession, though. I, I actually, <laughs> when I first heard about it, um, I thought it was something that only affected women. Huh. Because a lot of the things I was reading about it was very woman-directed and, and you I know, see. about... Making women feel like what they were going through was normal. Mm-hmm. So it was only very recently that I learned that men get it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by sad, it's not just about the feeling. Some people actually report crying. Some people actually... Yeah. So it's not just about feeling. You can also start crying afterwards. Yeah. So we're very familiar with the warm fuzzies. So the warm fuzzies is the postcoital euphoria where we feel all cuddly and nice and positive and, you know, you're radiant and glowing or whatever it is, and you feel good afterwards. And that's what we, for a long time, were thought to be normal. Right, right. Now, why would people end up sad after? It's hard to say why, I think. It probably has something to do with the chemicals in our bodies. Like how the warm fuzzies are also caused by chemicals in our bodies. It's caused by oxytocin, mm-hmm. the release of oxytocin, which is the feel-good hormone, the cuddle hormone. Right. Um, 
So how we know it's perhaps brain chemical related is that in the most severe forms, people have learned to or have been able to deal with postcortical sadness by being prescribed selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs. Which is? Which is uh, the kind of medication that's usually prescribed for depression. So s- what you're saying is that some people endure postcoital sadness repeatedly. Mm. So it's not just a one-time thing. No. It's not like for some people, somebody had a one-night stand, it was a bad decision, and the next one is better, therefore they don't feel it. So for some people, it's an, a prolonged problem. Yes. Oh, wow. Right. So, of course, you have to go through a proper assessment for it. There is no proper assessment tool. I would assume that it's a really deep, in-depth clinical interview that will have to suss out whether or not you have postcoital depression. Um, because sometimes you can feel bad because of body issues. Mm-hmm. You might feel have you know shame issues. Or you might have issues of guilt because of how you were raised, either mm-hmm. in your religious culture or other culture. You might feel bad because it wasn't something that you thought it was going to be, for example. Mm-hmm. It could be any number of a different combination of things also. Right, right. So if you are going to, you know, how to know that you have this is to actually go to a mental health professional and be properly assessed through in-depth clinical interview. Now, how does one know if one has it? Like, Because sometimes there are ways in which, and this is not just for postcoital sadness, but in general, sometimes some people are just more downcast in their, in their overall disposition. They're mellower, for mm. example. Yeah, some well, are like, you know, more, they're, they're not uh, exuberant all the time. I mean, at what point... Is it not a dispositional problem, but more of a chemical imbalance? When it's not normal for you, right? So if somebody is maybe a bit more mellow, that's how they are all the time. And so they wouldn't be expecting to be euphoric or too euphoric um, post-coital. But they feel sadder than usual. Mm. And it's a persistent feeling that, you know, that continues uh, over quite a few sexual interactions Mm -hmm. or if it's a problem that is affecting them in the way they function or it makes them feel bad about themselves, has made them actually avoid sexual intercourse, for example, those would be indications to have it assessed. So it's an extended period of behaving a certain way and seeing the same sort of depression happening, Mm. right? Mm. Uh, So you said that uh, there are ways that this manifests among women and men. So what are the the differences in general? I don't think there are much differences. I think, you know, it's it's sadness and how you express sadness and how how you express that sadness. But I think like a lot of mental health distress, women seem to be more comfortable talking about it compared to men. And the example that you related, for example, uh, you know, for instance, the men only talked about it when they were a bit more, allowed yeah. themselves to be a bit more vulnerable, sure, which sure. is, you know, after having a few drinks where inhibitions are down and then you have formed this sort of solidarity and this, you know, camaraderie that makes it okay, yeah. then yeah. they share it. The women culturally, I think, have been more open about talking about their very personal experiences. Mm-hmm. So I think you have a lot more open discussion amongst women. Having said that, I don't know if I can say the same for the Malaysian culture, in the right. Malaysian culture, right. because we don't talk about sex. Yeah. Does this have any correlation with the types of sex that happen? Like, 
you know, do they feel this because the sex was not reciprocal or it wasn't like uh, done in a, in a safe place? Or is it really their own sort of makeup or attitude mm. that, that leads to it? Again, I think it will depend on how persistent it is, mm. right? So if someone usually doesn't have that, but then this particular incident induced that feeling, mm-hmm. then they might want to consider what were the factors that induced it, mm-hmm. right? If it was someone who wasn't sure if it, they were feeling that way because they didn't achieve orgasm, for example, they could experiment and then see if that is really the case. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, so it's really about getting to know yourself as well. Yeah. I guess the main difference that I would point out in terms of, um, I guess as a form of depression is that this is very tied to a certain moment of a certain action. Yes. Whereas I guess when people think of depression in general, um, it is an underlying mood that trails you. Yes. Um, Yeah. So I guess help us understand what the the outlook is like Mm. in this regard. Like how does it... So is the person otherwise quote-unquote okay and suddenly the post-coital moment happens and that thing surfaces or, yeah, describe, yeah. The, picture it for us. Yeah. Right. So when it comes to post-coital sadness, it is specifically induced by sexual intercourse, so mm-hmm. after sexual intercourse. Right, right. And it is not a clinical condition, hmm. although it can be treated, it can be, uh, you know, something doesn't have to be a clinical condition in order to get medical sure, attention. Sure, sure. But right? why isn't it a clinical condition? Um, I don't think it is not something that has, or we don't know yet if it has as far-reaching effect as depression, for right, example. Right. De- you know, depression affects a lot of people, and we know for a fact that it affects functioning, daily right, functioning. Right. So in this sense, postcardial sadness is a lot less debilitating. It's not debilitating. And... It usually lasts for a short time. Depression, on the other hand, is a real clinical condition. And it is persistent and long-standing sadness. And it, like I said, it can be very debilitating, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. People can seriously suffer from loss of function. Mm -hmm. And people with depression have reduced libido, Mm. right? And almost the point where they are not just not having sex, but they cannot experience sexual pleasure either. With postcoital sadness, we don't see that at all. Mm-hmm. You know, the sex drive isn't affected. And for some people, or for a lot of people, their ability to achieve pleasure is not affected. It's mm-hmm. just something that comes after, right, right. after the incident. Now, there's treatment for this. Uh, what would be... Well, I don't know if it's treatment, but it's just that's that a clinical studies response. have shown, that's a yeah, clinical studies have shown that people this. have responded positively. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, so in that light, uh, what is the desired outcome of those treatments or responses? Okay, to be honest, I'm not sure if it's something that requires medical treatment mm-hmm. in the sense that you need to be prescribed medication. Um, I am wondering if people can opt for more behavioral type therapeutic sort of interventions for example we know that the human touch makes people happy all you need is seven seconds of actual skin contact to have oxytocin released so actually having more cuddling Mm. after sexual intercourse um, you know having some kind of closeness or some way of reassuring each other or having more open communication 
those things to see whether or not those can help the person right. deal with it. So is dealing with it a matter of not being sad after sex or is it about enjoying it more or what? I think first thing you have to do is acknowledge it. So mm-hmm. it's not about not being sad. It's to acknowledge that you do get that, admit it, and it's okay. Yeah, it's yeah. not just something that's, you know, it's you or something's wrong with you, yeah. right? And for the partner to understand that that sad reaction is not reflective of the actual sexual experience, right? It's quite independent of that. Mm-hmm. And to actually together figure out what can be done to make them feel better. Right, right. So just to be clear, uh, this is a sense of feeling engulfed by sadness. It's not like mellow post-sex moods, like in film noirs or anything like that, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, no, I'm I just mean, trying I, to explain you know, because I, I think, I think people have to picture it in yeah, a sense yeah, yeah. where it's not like, oh, we're both mellow, let's have a cigarette yeah. together and talk about existentialism. This yeah. is actually like you feel a bit overtaken or consumed by it right right i think for a lot of people especially in our culture it might be difficult to understand this because we don't talk about sex we don't learn about sex and what we know we glean from popular cinema or pornographic films and the scene that you've just described is quite a common trope in hollywood films Mm -hmm. right Uh, turn around light the cigarette and talk about the dark things of life yeah yeah. that's not what this refers to that's not what post-coital sadness is right no those are people those were people who are already uh, experiencing existential crises before (laughs) sexual intercourse right right so okay thanks for the clarifications with love but we'll be right back on you know on this subject where we are Unpacking postcoital sadness. I'm Ahmad Farahma, and this is Night School, alongside uh, Vizla Kamarisa, and this time on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to Night School. We are talking about postcoital sadness today with Vizla Kamarisa, and in the first part of the show, we went over, I guess, the general characteristics of this uh, mm-hmm. experience, and we shall move on to unpack it further by, I guess, maybe putting our more sociological hat on, Mm. um, what would you say? I mean, you know, sexual experiences are also socially constructed, right? Uh, And with that comes the specific emotions that reflect that construction process. So from a feminist perspective or a social scientist perspective, um, what would be the parallel explanation? The parallel explanation would be eating a Big Mac burger. Okay. All right. Um, we watch the ads and the patty looks juicy yes. and it looks thick and you know you're, you're promised a Big Mac and then you go to your local McDonald's and you order one and it tastes like cardboard right right and you eat it and anyway. you get disappointed yes but you eat it anyway right, and right. then you go back for and more and you know it you know it <laughs> even after before you opened it and found out it looked like cardboard you kind of had it at the yes, back of your mind that's yes. what it's going to be and like. it's not as pretty as it looked on television yeah. and you know the bread isn't as fluffy and there aren't sesame seeds in the bun which was something the song promised <laughs> <laughs> right so it's it's like that right for a lot of us our experience of uh, how we think sex is or how sex should be is framed by what we see in popular media yeah yeah. and for many of us also in real life it's quite far from that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean it's bad it's very different right it's messy it's you know you 
there's a lot of negotiation that's involved and it's not as steamy as what we think it's going to be. And it's a lot of mutual discovery also, you know. It's a whole bunch of different things. And sometimes it's very frustrating Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. you don't know yet what works for you and the person you're with doesn't know how to make it work for you. So it's going to take some time. It can be a frustrating experience. It can be a negative experience. And of course, there are those situations where it becomes a really nasty experience as well. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, a lot of this can determine how you feel afterwards Mm -hmm. about the sexual intercourse. Right, right. And it's about understanding what you're feeling and trying to develop a kind of curiosity about why you're feeling that way. Right. I guess the interesting implication to what you described is that um, to a certain extent, it's actually very healthy to not romanticize sex so much. Definitely. Yeah, because based on what you just described, a lot of it, uh, a lot of the issues come around how it's so idealized Mm. and that when we actually experience it, it's plastic and the buns aren't fluffy, right? So, cardboard. Yeah, cardboard, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so sesame seeds. <laughs> so, I mean, what then happens to sex, right? Because typically the way it's positioned in popular culture is the way that most people first encounter it, right? I mean, is part of dealing with postcoital sadness then rethinking sex altogether, right? I think we have to deal with the question of sex by rethinking sex, mm-hmm. right? And this is a general statement, not necessarily just for postcoital absolutely, sadness. Right? Right. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's, it's important in terms of satisfaction in a relationship, being happy with your body, and also how you think about sex will reflect back on how you feel about your body as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Your relationship with food, your relationship with media, everything you know, will be challenged and changed if you start rethinking Sex. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it's a question of uh, having fun, I guess. I mean, because part of the reason why postcultural sadness is of interest to people who, you know, not even from a clinical side of things, mm. is, is that it paints the opposite picture of what, I guess, popular culture peddles, right? That rather than enjoyment, yeah. right, you get... So, I mean, what would be the alternative way of thinking, not just about sex, but enjoying sex? Mm. Well, number one, I think we have to get rid of all the guilt around it, right? And this guilt comes to us, at us, not to us, at us from various um, sources. Mm -hmm. And the other thing also, I think sex is discussed in very, very, what's the word? From a very masculine perspective, Mm -hmm. right? And... I mean, I'm on Twitter, so sometimes I see a lot of these discussions. And it's very much from what a man can do and what a real man is. And you notice this even among women? Yes. Right. Right? And we are still at that situation where women are still objects in sex rather than actual subjects who can do things. Women are people you do things to. I'm talking about heterosexual sex, of course. So... Even that would need to be examined, right? How we talk about women who enjoy sex. It's very much the virgin and whore dichotomy, right? A good girl is not supposed to enjoy sex. If you do enjoy sex, you're a bad girl, right? Those kinds of narratives, those kinds of discourses are still very prevalent in our culture. And we need to talk about that. We need to address these things in order to fully enable a healthy sexual life. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting then that 
you know, the post-coital sadness moment shows how those narratives do not work, mm. right? That you need an alternative narrative mm. there. Mm. Now, what do we know about how debilitating this is, right? Is this something that one can sort of brush aside at worst for a few days? Or is this going to be something, a kind of paralysis when mm. it comes to like intimacy? Well, yes, I think it's definitely going to affect intimacy, especially sexual intimacy in terms of people beginning to avoid sex because they are afraid of the negative feeling that comes afterwards. They don't understand it. They're afraid of it. They may not want to make their partners sad by seeing them cry. Mm -hmm. They may not want to disappoint their partners by feeling sad afterwards. Any number of things. So it isn't so much debilitating as it would be causing dysfunction in the relationship. I see, I see. And that that will have debilitating effects because it starts to affect your self-esteem. The people in the relationship start wondering if they're worth it, if they're loved, mm -hmm. if they're cared for, and a whole bunch of other things. Right. So the partner, uh, presuming the person has a stable partner, plays a crucial role then in the recovery, quote-unquote. Um, they could, right? But also I think the person who's experiencing it could being very open, they, they could also work on it themselves. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. uh, healthy sexuality also means healthy exploration mm -hmm. by yourself, knowing your body, knowing how you respond, knowing how you feel about certain things. So exploring by yourself can also work. You know, what are the times where the postcortal sadness is particularly bad? What are the kinds of factors that have led to that, right? Experimenting with different things like light, music, Mm -hmm. sounds, touch, whatever it is, where that feeling is alleviated or is less severe than before. So if you are in a stable relationship where your partner is willing to experiment with you and give you that space to explore, that would be very helpful. But if you're not in a stable relationship, it doesn't mean you're doomed. Mm -hmm. You know, you can also do these things by yourself. Yeah. Then does this... Uh, because, okay, so from what I understand, like a lot of mental, emotional health issues are related, mm. right? So anxiety is related to depression. I mean, that's a, one of the common sort of links that people draw. Is this necessarily linked to other things or can we understand this as more of a, I mean, more scenario-specific issue? Okay, so I think you can have anxiety disorder and not have postcoital sadness. Interesting. Right. But you can have postcoital sadness and develop anxiety mm, okay, okay. around sex and intimacy. All right, interesting. Now, do you have a sense of like uh, the trends here? Is this becoming something that uh, people are feeling more comfortable talking about? Because as you know, society becomes commercialized, it's going to also become sexualized. It's mm. sort of almost you know, a twinned process. And I think this relates back to what you said earlier about how sometimes the media is the, our first and most influential uh, exposure mm. to intimacy and, and sex, right? So do we sense that more and more people might encounter post-coital sadness? I don't know. I have not encountered it yet um, amongst the people I work with in Malaysia. I have read a lot about it based on stuff coming from the West mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where there's a lot... It's a very different kind of conversation that they're having about sex. Yeah. Yeah. Does this say something about how, you know, when sex has exceeded its biological function, right, it has to acquire more meaning, quote unquote. Mm. You know what I mean? Like in the sense where, and this is what cultures and religions do, right? They try to regulate it mm. and they try to like 
shape attitudes around it. You know, mm. this is what you should do. This is when you should do it. Blah blah. When when that is removed too, as society is modernized, there's this sort of like residue of anxiety mm. as to what is it that it's supposed to be mm. when it's not just for biological function, mm. right? And like you said earlier a lot of it is clumsy a lot of it is like ridiculous you know <laughs> but people do it anyway you know so i get it that there is this sort of healthy attitude that should be considered anyway regardless of whether somebody is sad after but you know that i wonder looking from an evolutionary perspective right where sex really serves a specific function but because we need to survive we'll always you know the drive is always going to be excessive to an extent because you don't just do it for procreation, right? But it's good to have the excess need so that you can anyway, right? So that it just isn't deployed when you need to have mm. uh, children. And it's not easy to have kids anyway, right? Yeah. So, so, so I guess I wonder from evolutionary perspective, we can sort of theorize a bit as to why is it? Because sadness also, I mean, in a lot of cases, it's a kind of perplexity we encounter when we can't make sense of things. Mm. Like among many, there are many reasons why we're sad, but uh, sometimes it's, it's there, the impasse meaning, right? We're like, what does it all mean? You know, I mean, that's the kind of existential rendition, but I guess the post-coital mm. sadness shows one instance in it. Mm. So taking an evolutionary perspective, I wonder if this is what happens when, you know, we are wired to constantly propagate the species, but we live in a sort of quote-unquote civilized setup where we don't always have to do that, right? Because mm. a bear is not looking around the corner or a tiger is not pouncing whenever, right? So we just have these sort of like more time to think about what to do with our bodies, mm. right? And I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. So, mm. Well, I don't know if sex can be looked at it purely from an evolutionary perspective. Because if that were true, a lot of people, I mean, everybody will be having children. Yeah, yeah. Right? But well, me, yeah. for example, I've taken the decision to not have children. Yeah, yeah. Right, so but it's, evolutionary is an, evolution is a numbers game too, right? Because extinction is always a possibility. But right, yeah, 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 okay. But for me, you know, I look at sex as something we do simply because it's a very human thing, and let's not think about things like reproduction. Let's not think about things like oh my god, an excessive pleasure, any of those things. As humans, we like to feel good. As humans, we are pleasure-seeking. That's why we like to eat certain kinds of food. That's why we, you know, we crave for some things. We would drive all the way to a different state to have their laksa or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. We like to view good art. We like to watch good films. We like to feel good. And sex is just one way to enable that yeah, also. Yeah. Yeah. And it also brings an added bonus of building intimacy between people and forming closeness, from kinship, and a whole bunch of other things as well. So I think I see sex, and it's a very different perspective that I take. And yeah, I don't yeah. think that the evolutionary perspective takes these things into consideration. Yeah. Uh, no, definitely. I, I don't think so either. I think there's a lot more that we do that isn't for evolution's sake but absolutely the um because you know the evolutionary perspective is ultimately about the endurance of the species itself sex plays a specific role this is mm. a question of like given that we're socialized to not do that as often we have these choices and you know we have means of subsisting without you know being hunter-gatherers mm. anymore like yeah we just have more 
we just the question of the body becomes yeah becomes excessive in a yeah. sense not just when it comes to sex but like how to appear yeah what to do with it what exercise you know the body becomes like superfluous yeah right, in a sense yeah. so yeah i don't know I'm but i think you also need idea. to challenge the evolutionary perspective oh i agree i agree i think it's limiting it was just it's, like yeah it's a, i was just uh, imposing a posing a perspective there and like what, how to yeah, yeah how that would answer sadness you know yeah in any case Evolution aside and speculations aside, um, a lot of your examples appear to reference the feminine standpoint when it comes to this, right? When you talk about shame and guilt and the way cultures, culture I conditions. I don't think it's just feminine. Gra- I, gr- okay, I grant okay. you that. I mean, okay. just to say, I'm not saying that we're all women feel that. I'm not saying that. But uh, all things, just all things considered, the burden of, of, of carrying certain virtues appear to be directed to women more than men for example mm. i mean what would you advise men who can't make sense of the the sadness mm. is there like a specific especially because like you said by default we tend to think of sex from a masculine perspective mm. right so for some for men who do uh, encounter the sadness given the way that they are socialized in a position as sort of the the active taker you know, uh, if you will, um, what would be the response or quote-unquote solution or something? Yeah. Mm. Well, I think equality in every aspect of life is definitely going to make life a lot easier for everybody, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So changing the narrative of how we talk about sex, uh, let's, let's look at how we talk about men and sex. You know, men are supposed to be constantly thinking about sex. Men are supposed to be just waiting Right for the slightest thing to get them aroused. Right, right. Um, every little thing is going to get them aroused. So women better cover up, right? I do not think that all men are like this. Mm-hmm. I think you know um, we all have things to do and places to be, and we can't always be thinking about these things mm-hmm, all the time. Mm-hmm. But then again, you know the, the way we talk about sex from a masculine perspective is also about male performance. Right. Right, and. Sex can also be bad for men, mm-hmm. right? Or sex can be good, but they can still feel bad about it afterwards, mm-hmm. right? And men are not talking about it. Mm-hmm. Men are not thinking about it outside these terms because if you admit that, then it's a question of your masculinity. Mm-hmm. If you admit that, then you're not man enough or you're not a good lover or any number of those things. And that's also sort of the peril of being the the subject all the right, time, right? right. You, you're questioning your worth, but then you're also caught in a narrative that doesn't allow you to do that. Mm-hmm. So I think all those things I described apply to men as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if for both men or women, if they are experiencing the kind of sadness post-coital to just admit it, mm-hmm. talk about it. If you are with a stable partner, discuss with them what, can mm-hmm. be done. How can your partner help you if you're feeling like this? Yeah. Right? And take a good look at how your sex life is. Is it something that you want or is it something that somebody else has told you how it should be? Yeah. And, you know, going back to the drawing board and starting from scratch. How do you like to be touched? How do you like yeah. to be held? How do you like to be kissed or any number of those things? Just thinking out loud, uh, could postcoital sadness be an indication that someone is asexual? No, Hmm. no. I think it's a very normal part of 
human sexual response. Right. Oh, because oh, I'm thinking about what you said earlier, because you could A, enjoy it, and B, you could even anticipate and pursue it, right? So there is already like, the desire for it is there. It's just yes. that the sadness happens after, yes. right? right. So, so it's you not know, like, people who like, are asexual don't actually right. necessarily feel Engage the desire. Engage process, yeah. 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 Interesting stuff. Uh, any concluding thoughts about this, Vizla, before we wrap up? You know, I think a healthy relationship is one where you can talk about your vulnerabilities and you can definitely build that in your relationship. But you need to be open to starting the conversation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, okay, well... Um, on that point, uh, maybe they can continue conversation with you on your uh, newly minted Instagram account, which is? At Vizla Kumarisan. <laughs> and also your Twitter is? At Vizla All right, there you go. Please don't ask me sex questions on Twitter. <laughs> well, DM, you can DM yeah, you the, can DM uh, me. the question uh, maybe. Uh, yeah. Questions and not pictures, please. <laughs> Alright, well you can email the show too bfmnightschool at gmail.com Look us up on Facebook uh, Start Night School in the search space Or download our app at the Apple App Store I'm Ahmad Fawad Rahman Alongside Vizla Komarisan this week And you're listening to Night School on BFM 89.9 The Business Station Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.